You are listening to the Bridge Community Church Podcast out of Warrington, Virginia. Our church exists to connect you to God, others, and the marketplace. For more information, you can visit us online at bridge4life.com. Thank you for listening, and we hope you are blessed by today's message. And it's good to see everybody here today. What a great day, man. And uh, I don't know how many are left, but this morning, the cafe, they provided a whole assortment of power rings for everybody. Some of you are like, what's a power ring? Some people call it a donut, but when a donut gets saved and redeemed, it's called a power ring. (laughs) So you uh, stop by and spend a little time uh, getting some power, you know and uh, have some uh, fellowship with people. But today we're starting a new series called Rediscovering Christmas, Good News in Troubling Times. I figured this would be a good topic. And uh, one of the things that we're doing is is not only gonna be looking at the Christmas story as it relates to uh, the Gospel of Matthew and then also Luke's account, but we're gonna go into the Old Testament and get behind what I call, get behind the veil a little bit and look at the history of Christmas. In other words, some of the prophecies. Oftentimes a certain verse is referenced and we don't look at the whole entirety of a passage. And so we're going to at least do that a couple weeks. And so today we're going to Isaiah chapter 9. There's one particular verse in there that everybody is probably familiar with, but they're not they don't understand all the scriptures related around that particular scripture. So we're going to speak on that today. Would everybody stand for the reading of the word? Isaiah chapter nine. And we're gonna read the first seven verses together. Come on, everybody together. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will honor Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, You have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders." And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. The Holy Spirit, as we look at the word, we again ask that it would not just fill the academic mind with facts. We ask for the Holy Spirit to transform us. Speak to our hearts, speak to our values, speak God to our actions. And we pray in Jesus' name. And everybody said amen. 
Amen. The Lord bless you and be seated. So as we look at this passage, I need to set it up with just saying this brief comment. Some of you came through Thanksgiving, and everybody knows that Thanksgiving, you know, with a variety of relatives and sometimes friends, everybody will say, hey, you know, at Thanksgiving, we're not going to talk about religion and politics. So I'm going to talk about religion and politics today. Not because that's, you know, what I decided and whatever. Actually, that's the passage that we read today. And some of you are probably thinking, oh, great. He's probably going to offload and download a bunch of stuff. No, what you're going to find is, is I'm just going to stick with the scripture. Because if you don't like it, you, I'll be sure that the prophet Isaiah hears about it. Because <laughs> all I'm doing is just going to stick with what he wrote. And this is critical because sometimes a lack of context helps us or deters us from really getting the message. So we're gonna spend a little time setting up who Isaiah was, what was going on, because then you see what he has to say and you're like, oh wow, there is more in this text than I ever dreamed there could be. There's a passage there that most people are familiar with, for under, for under us a child is born, okay? We, we hear that at Christmas, we know it prophesies the Messiah. But what was the context that even led to that? Why, what was the context? Because Isaiah has 66 chapters, okay? So what was the context of that verse? What was going on? So that's why we need to take the time to look at the context of Isaiah, and then you will see, actually, Isaiah is a book about religion and politics. The whole book, not a segment. That's really what he's speaking to. So one of the challenges that we have at Christmas is the lack of understanding surrounding the prophecies of the Messiah. We have a tendency to grab a prophecy, and there's nothing wrong with that. We say, oh, here's a prophetic verse, and we have it in the New Testament, or maybe we, it's not mentioned in the New, but it was a prophecy. We, we look at it, and we fail the context of that prophecy. What was the context when that was? Why was it even given? How's that? Why? I mean, why, why was there a need for so many different prophecies on the Messiah? Well, you could have had, you know, 10, 12, 13, made your case, moved on, but yet you have over 100. So what was going on that necessitated so many prophecies? And this is just one of them that we're looking at today. So as I was preparing this, I thought of something. I don't know if I've ever said this before. It says what? Yeah, it just sort of dawned on me. I thought I'd share that with you today. But knowing the context. So let me introduce you. I'm going to take some time. Let me introduce you to Isaiah. You will never, ever see Isaiah the same way. And you will never read his book, the book of Isaiah, the same way again. You, because until you know who he was, you can't appreciate what he wrote. So the first thing is this, his name actually means Yahweh is salvation. In those particular days, you had a tendency to name your children based on some kind of message that you felt was appropriate. And, and his parents, they named him Yahweh is salvation. He was, a, he was born in a wealthy family. He was well-educated and he was a political insider in Judah. Let me expand on that. Israel Hit a, had a civil war. It did not get settled. So a bunch of the tribes in the north broke off and they continued to call themselves 
Israel. But a couple tribes in the south, they went a different direction and they called themselves Judah, but they kept the capital Jerusalem with them. So at this particular time in history, you gotta remember, Jerusalem is with Judah. Jerusalem is not with Israel. How many know that gets really confusing? Okay, but you do need to understand this, okay? So when I say that Isaiah, was, he, he was in Israel, or he was in Judah, he was in Jerusalem, and he was born there, he was educated there, and what happened was this. He knew everybody in power just by his family, his connections. Some even say by marriage and some other things that he was actually a distant relative of some of the kings. So he, had, he was never an elected official, but because of his upbringing and because of his early childhood relationships and a lot of those people bleeding into the government and becoming you know, authority figures, he had access to everything. So now we begin to look at, so his ministry, let me uh, put it in context. One of the things I like to do is bring world history for some of our younger generation because they often hear a world history and then a biblical history and they don't know how the two merge and they think, you know, the church has a different history than what the world history does. And I'm saying, no, they're just leaving us out. Okay, so this, may be a put, so this might help you to understand who Isaiah is. He began his ministry about the time that Rome was founded. okay. You, and I know, here comes Google. Somebody's gonna be Googling, you know, like when was Rome found? And you'll find it's about the same period of time that Isaiah. So Isaiah was in, was in Judah and the Israel territory and Rome was now being founded and getting started. It's also the same time when the Greeks began the Olympic Games. And you know, it's not that far. Greece is not that far from the land of Israel and Judah. It wasn't that far. So he would have been aware of this. So it kind of puts, oh, so he was aware of these world events starting to happen. This guy was connected to world leaders. He, under, he, he knew people, never elected, but always access. So what you have with him is this. This would be like a guy born today who was born in Washington, D.C., educated in D.C., and all of his classmates bled into positions of power, and he stayed in D.C., and because of his relationships, he could literally walk any of the halls that exist today because they were his friends. But he was never an elected official, but he had influence. Yeah. So this maybe puts some perspective again with him. He served during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, who were the kings of Judah. So he was a value. Even when the kings rotated out or, you know, there was a change, every king kept him around. So obviously this guy brought something to the table. He had knowledge, he had an understanding. And of course, if you go into the, the, the book of Kings and the Chronicles, you can see some of the things that he was telling the kings. They let him have access to them. They wanted to hear Isaiah's voice because they knew that he understood some things that they did. So he was invited in. By the way, he also had the ability to speak things they didn't want to hear. And that's what happens when you're a prophet, right? You sometimes go, I have a message you're not gonna like. But I have a compelling, I gotta tell you what's about to come down the line. And so hear this. We sometimes think that Isaiah may have been this guy on a, in a mountain or on a pasture and this stuff is just being downloaded to him and, he's just, and he has no idea what he's speaking about. Actually, it's just the opposite. He's extremely informed. He sees everything and God is helping him connect dots 
See, I want you to understand, God can work with the knowledge that you currently have and give you insight and prophetic words on things you do know about. It's just that God knows it better. And God was using what Isaiah knew to be able to get an audience with those people and God was giving him insight based on stuff that he already knew. But it was, listen, it was divinely inspired. So I just say that. God can use your education. You know, I, I just wish God would just download everything so I didn't have to go to school. I mean, wouldn't that be cool, you know? Just lay your head on the book and by osmosis, it's transferred. And you're like, no, no, no. God, God works with the investments that you put in your life, which is kind of cool. It's, it's, it's all God and it's all us, right? It's together. But here's another thing that you need to know. He had a couple of other prophets, contemporaries we call them, and they were Hosea and Micah. So you might want to read Hosea and Micah in hand with Isaiah because they were having prophetic words as well. Interesting, if you know the, the book of Hosea, it talks about his wife and his family and how God was using all that chaos. So it's interesting to know that Isaiah would have been aware of Hosea's chaos and how God was using it. Hosea was not hung out there all by himself. Isaiah would have been aware of the challenges that was going on in Hosea's life. So he wrote this book around 700 to 600 BC. So these prophecies are 700 years before the Messiah shows up. That's interesting out of itself. That would be like something being prophesied in the early 1300s, and then it's becoming a, a, a reality here today. Hey, in 1300, they still thought the world was flat and you could sail off the edge of the world and they had no idea this land existed. 700 years, Isaiah gives these words. In fact, it would have been easy to dismiss what Isaiah said, just going, man, I don't see it happening. I mean, how long does a guy need to have his prophetic word come around? 700 years? But that's exactly how long it took. But here's another thing. As soon as Hezekiah came off the throne, his son, King Manasseh, became the king. And let me just translate this before I read this. Isaiah was what today would be considered a whistleblower. Somebody who has access to power, who sees things that are going on that are wrong, and out of conviction and out of a holy injustice for what they're seeing, decides to go public with it, except they're saying, thus saith the Lord. How many know that's definitely a double whammy for a whistleblower? Okay, it's enough, it's one thing to say it, but then to say, God told me to do this, you'd be going, ah, this guy's a whack job. So you can understand maybe how people responded to him. You're like, dude, you're a whistleblower and you're saying God told you to do all this. So when Hezekiah's son became king, it would have been the fifth king that Isaiah, he knew Isaiah to be a whistleblower. And this guy had no morals and no values, this new king. So King Manasseh of Judah executed Isaiah by placing him in a hollow log and sawing him in two. How many, that's a way to say we're stopping this. It also shows you the value system that this new king had and man, did he lead Judah down a road of destruction. That's another day, another time. But it would be easy to think, wow, it must have been cool to be Isaiah. Uh, not really. Not cool. And he must have had some serious conviction because 
So many of those people would be going, why are you turning on us? Why are you hanging out our dirty laundry out there for everybody to know? And why are you disguising? See, they would have said, why are you disguising it as religion? See, he was mixing religion and politics and it didn't go well. It didn't end well. He was killed for it. So that's why I say, let's understand who's given these prophecies about the Messiah. These aren't warm, fuzzy moments. The people of Judah are totally disillusioned. They've lost faith, but it's a king. You have no, when it's a king, there's no vote. You have no voice. You have no ability to stop it. You have no ability to step in. And so either the king is good or the king is not. And if he's not, you're a victim and there's nothing you can do about it. And you might have to live your total life as a victim. And so people by this time have said, we've had king after king after king. This is nuts. This is crazy. They've no, listen, they've, there's no pride. There's no hope. They just assume government and kings are bad. That's it. Just try to live a life and stay out of sight of everybody. Just leave me alone. And Isaiah comes along and he says, um, you notice he uses the word government twice? Those who are in the political arena in our church, I know that they saw that. And, I, and here's the thing. I hope that you see that God can use you in your places. Being in your positions and having faith, I want you to know that I know. That is hard. But what I want you to see is this. Sometimes, yeah, you take a hit as a political figure so that the people don't take the hit. Okay, I thought that was a good point. Please say amen to that. That's welcome to lead. Leaders take hits so that the people that they lead don't. That's why so many people go, I don't want to lead. I'll take my hit, but I'm not taking the people's hit. Sorry, if you're a leader, you take hits that aren't even your fault. That's what leaders do. You take hits that should have been for somebody else, but you're the leader, so you're the easier target. And you take it so that people can have a life. Amen? Uh, that's not a new thing. Uh, that's exactly what Jesus did. That hit that he took was meant for you and me. And Jesus said, I'll take it so you can have a life. Wow. Sometimes we need to understand the arenas of life, why we do what we do. And even when nobody says thank you, we do it anyway. Because it's the right thing. Say amen. amen. All right. So what was his message? I want to share. He, if, there's 66 chapters in his book. He's only got four messages. So it, it goes to show you how much detail he's giving. <laughs> I mean, he's just not like skimming the surface. He's giving names, places. He's telling people. And here's what he does. First of all, he says there are secret places of pagan worship going on. You stand in public and say that Jehovah God is your God, but I know where you sneak off to and you are attending these private, secretive pagan religions and you, 
and he lets it out of the bag. No doubt Isaiah would have been invited to one of those gatherings because after all, he's in the elite group. He's got money and education and he would have been invited and he would have said, no, no, I'm not going there. And he is aware that this is going on and he finally takes it public and saying, a lot of these officials that you see that claim to know God, they don't. They're worshiping other gods. They're sneaking off to pagan festivities, secret worship centers that our nation says is not to be allowed. They are funding it and they're making it happen. How many know that'll get a man killed? It did. Then he says, the wealthy are oppressing the poor. Isaiah is one of the wealthy and he knows people who are using it to gain the system to take more from other people instead of helping them out. And he calls them out. They would have been his friends. Some might have even been his family. He then says women are neglecting their families in quest of carnal pleasures because of a particular day uh, and how the, uh, the society, the, the backbone of their economy would have been agriculture. The women would stay home with the children and they were abandoning their families so that they could enjoy the pleasures of life. And he calls them out for that, that pleasures over family was wrong. And then the last one, the priests and the prophets were drunk with pleasing men. He actually uses the word drunk seven times and he's not referring to alcohol. He's saying that they are such man pleasers because when they tell people what they want to hear, they get all these accolades, they get the applause, they get the awards, they get monetary gain, that they are drunk getting approval from other people and they're figuring out ways how to do more and more of it because they get more and more stuff from people. And he says, your prophet and your priest are a joke. They say, thus saith the Lord, and it has nothing to do with God. It has to do with, they know if they say that, they'll be compensated for it. Well, you can understand why it, the people of Judah are going, why try? Why try? Why? Does anybody even care? I don't even see justice beginning to bring correction. It looks like corruption has won the day, corruption is in charge, and justice has left. And Isaiah comes along and says, let me tell you about a day that is on the way. You and I call it Christmas. But he said, let me announce to you the Messiah. God is so fed up with injustice, he's gonna send his son. God sees it. And God's not just gonna send another prophet. God is going to send his son to fix this. And that's where we pick up what we read today. So let me go through those scriptures. I don't have a point. I have just statements to make today. Is that all right with you today? They're just statements. So what I want you to see is what he prophesied and what were the people of Judah hearing. He says, nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. In the past, the humbled land of Zebulun and the land of Natali. So those are two areas in the north and they have been lost to Assyria. It's been conquered. And if there's anything that history had shown in that particular day is kings never gave land back. So once it was taken, it was assumed to be lost forever, never to be regained. So in their mind, this is lost. 
But he says, in the future, he will honor Galilee, which is in those territories. He will honor Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. What he's saying here is this. The Messiah would primarily live and minister in Galilee. He says, you lost Galilee, but I got news. The greatest honor that could ever happen is gonna be coming out of Galilee. He's saying not only is it gonna be restored, he's saying that's the location that you will find the Messiah coming in. It's lost today, but it's coming back. Then he goes into verse two. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light on those living in the land of deep darkness, a, a deep darkness, a light has dawned. I wanna pause a minute. If you're an English major, you probably just saw a shift in the tone and how it is written. Isaiah is prophesying, right? If you don't know, just say yes. He doesn't write that as a prophecy. He writes it as if it's already happened. Do you see that? The tone just shift. This is so real to Isaiah. He's saying in the world of the spirit, I have already, it's already happened. It's already done. The people walking in darkness have seen, do you see that? have seen a great light on those living in the land of deep darkness. A light has, done. it does not say will. It says has. You see, in the prophetic, we have to understand there are things that happen in the spirit world before it becomes a reality in our physical world. And Isaiah is saying, this is already done. We're just waiting for God to bring it into physical reality because in the spirit world, it's a done deal. It has happened. And so the Messiah will bring salvation and hope. He's saying there's deliverance and there's hope. The very thing that you have given up on, the Messiah is gonna bring that back. You're gonna have a reason to get up and be hopeful for your day, for your life, for your momentum. It's not over. The Messiah can change everything that is going on. He's saying the light has dawned. In verse three, he says, you have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice because you as people rejoice at the harvest and warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. He says the, enlarge, the Messiah is going to enlarge the community of God's people. Notice that, enlarge the nation. How do you enlarge the nation if you are in possession of the land that God promised? He's saying the, the Gentiles are on the way. Okay, that's where you and I get excited. Because what we have to understand is 2,700 years ago, Isaiah prophesied there was a day coming for you and for me. Wow. And he didn't even know this place existed. But he said, God's going to enlarge the nation. And it's going to happen primarily through the Gentiles. That's you. That's me. Wow. Wow. And then you go to verse four, for as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressors. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. He's saying the Messiah would deliver his people from oppression and the crushing, and crushing defeat. There would be peace. 
You notice he says the boots, the clothing and blood would be burned. Why? Because he says you don't need warrior outfits anymore because there's no more war. He's saying you don't have to ship your sons off, your daughters off, your dads don't have to go to battle, your moms. They won't be needed in those capacities. You won't have to fight for your existence. You won't have to fight to have a life. Wow. To these people, big deal. There is no way that you could ever live a life in the kingdom of Israel or the kingdom of Judah and not have some connection to the casualties of war. Impossible. Everybody, everybody had skin in the game because first of all, it was a king. And if it was time to fight, he just ordered everybody to show up. You know, when you're a king, you can be very convincing. Everybody shows up. Didn't have an option. There was no appeal. There was no, hey, what? The king says, we're going to war. You don't want to be late. Wow. And God says there's going to be a day you don't need those clothes anymore because there'll be peace. Then in, okay, verse six, the one we all know. See this, we've gotten the momentum. Now this is the one everybody is familiar with. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. Oh, government. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. See, that's the verse we get excited about. That's the one we go, yeah, that's my Christmas verse right there. Do you even know what it means? Yeah, he's on his way. Well, yeah, but why, why these descriptions? See, when you understand what Isaiah was and what Isaiah did, He's, usually, he's, taking, he's taking things from his life and he says, let me tell you about this Messiah. So first of all, he says, the Messiah has a government. There's gonna be order. And here we thought when we went to heaven, it was just gonna be, no, there's, there's government and there's order in heaven. I wouldn't wait for everybody to stop saying yippee skippy and all that kind of stuff. And notice it says it'll be on his shoulders. So it's an implying a type of government where it rests on him, not others, it's him. Then he uses these words, wonderful counselor. Now I know people mean well when they go, man, that verse means a lot to me because I'm in counseling right now, they say, and I read that he's a wonderful counselor and I go, you're all right, okay. I don't, I, don't, I don't go, no, wait a minute, I just let it ride. But now that I have the opportunity to present, you understand they didn't have counselors the way we have counselors today. So you, you can't take that word and mirror it to American culture. He's the best counselor there is. Okay, uh, I'm not saying he can't do that, but that's not what that word means, okay? Isaiah was a counselor to the political figures and to the armies, to the kings. And kings relied upon counselors because they knew that counselors could go into rooms and have contacts with people that a king couldn't because his mere presence would cause people to go into a different form of speaking and acting because it was a king. 
And so you had a series, you would choose your counselors wisely based on their connections and who they were exposed to and who they could call and who they had relationships with. That's why Isaiah was so valuable because he grew up with the people that were now in power. And so a king was really dependent upon the counselor saying, what does your contact in Assyria say? What does your contact in Egypt say? What does your contact say in this particular region? And they would work their counselors to try to get an accurate picture so they could make the right decision. A counsel, the right counselors in the room were critical. And it says, you notice it says he's a wonderful counselor. Do you notice that? It doesn't say he's a counselor. It says he's what? Wonderful. This means he's got a good report. I've made contacts and I got good news. It means that it, he knows what to do. You see, you go into James chapter one, verse five. It says, if anybody lacks wisdom, ask God. That's the counselor. Why? He's connected Many times I pray this over, and now you've heard me say it, but many times a prayer that I will say is, I don't know what to do, God. Can you show me enough so that I do know what I need to do? Please don't tell me everything. Just show me enough that I know what the right call is that I know what the right decision. See, he's the counselor. He's in the rooms that I don't have access to. He knows people that I don't know. He knows conversation I don't know. I don't think I wanna know all that. But I would like him to tell me enough so that I know what I ought to do. He's the great counselor. Then it says this, he's the mighty God. So he's the authority to do what needs to be done. If he's the mighty God, he can back up the decision that he says needs to happen. And this is interesting because in our culture, the courts make decisions and then they hand it off to law enforcement to support it and to go make it happen. Two different entities. And God says, no, I'm, not, I'm just not the one who can say this is what ought to be done. I can actually make it happen. Wow, so the person who renders the decision is also the person who has the ability to go out of the room and make it happen. By the way, you saw this in King Solomon. So this is, we're, we're democracy oriented. We have to get into the kingdom orientation. King Solomon had two women and they were arguing about this baby, about who, which, who did the baby belong to. And he finally said, let's cut the baby in two and each woman can have half. And the one woman spoke up and said, no, no, no. She can have the child then. Why? Because he knew the mother of that child would never let that happen. And King Solomon said, now take that baby and award it to her. See, he not only made the decision, he had the ability to back it up. It wasn't fill out the paperwork and send it through the channels. You know, he, he is the paperwork. So what we have here is, he says the Messiah knows what needs to happen. And the Messiah, ironically, doesn't have to worry about communicating it properly because he's the guy that also makes it happen. And then notice this, he's the everlasting father. You'd think that a God who has the ability to know what's right and to make it happen, 
you would be going, boy, you better be careful. <laughs> you don't want God having a bad day. And God says, you know, I'd rather you not see me that way. I wanna be your father. Yeah, I have that authority. And yeah, I am a king. But I would rather you see me as your dad. I didn't think of this in the first service. But in our younger days of pastoring, we were blessed to pastor a large church in Indiana. And we had three kids and my oldest was with me and he was in the back seat. We pulled into the parking lot and I think it was the first time he ever saw the magnitude of, the, of everything. And he leans up and he says to me, Dad, you're the boss of this place, aren't you? <laughs> I said, what? Some would say that, yeah. But most, you know, most people see me as a pastor. Yeah, but what you say goes, right? Yeah. So you're the boss of all this. I was kind of like, I don't like where this is going. I said, yeah, yeah, ultimate. I said, I have a lot of good people around me. You know, I'm trying to explain this to a child, you know, like how this works. I said, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, uh, and I said, you got any other questions? No. So you, you, you got a lot of authority. And I said, buddy, I pulled over and we were, we were now turned into the parking lot. I pulled the car over and I just put it in park and I turned around and I looked at him. I said, everything you said is true, but the most important thing for me to get you to understand is this. I'm still your dad. I'm your dad. I don't want you walking in there and seeing me like that. I'm your dad. You can always talk to me. And I will always love you. This is just a temporary responsibility that God has put on me, but I will always be your dad. It's one of those moments you realize it's important my kid get this framed right or this could go bad. Does everybody understand that? Sometimes you realize, oh my, we're having a conversation that if I don't hurry up and frame it right, they could walk away with some distortions. Can I tell you that God wants you to see him as your father? God, you can do all this. You can, you can, you can make it happen. Yeah. You own everything. Yeah, you're the boss. Yeah. God says, but I want you to talk to me like I'm your dad not an authority figure. Talk to me. See, the people of Judah hadn't had that forever. They never had a king who cared. The king would use people to get what he wanted, but not always what was best for the people. And then he says, the prince of peace. What does that look like? In those particular days, kings would often use their children, prince, to go negotiate with an enemy because they knew by sending a family member that it was viewed as a legitimate effort. And sometimes when peace was, was negotiated, one of the children would stay in that kingdom and the other king would send one of their kids back to the other kingdom. And it was sort of a way to make sure the treaty was honored 
because each king had something in the family at stake. Sometimes it happened even through a marriage. One king would offer a son, the other king would offer his daughter and they would marry. And so it was a way to make sure the peace was good. So here's the thing, everybody knew the prince had full authority to do the negotiations because they were family. And because of that, a king would never violate a prince because that would be violating the king and that would lead to war. And it's interesting. The prince, God's son, Jesus, came and negotiations went like this. Somebody has to die. The offense is too great. I've spoken with the king. Somebody has to die for what you've done. If not, the king will bring the full weight of his kingdom's wrath upon you. I'm here to tell you, the wages of your sin is death. And our response is, I don't know what to do. And the prince said, I'll tell the king, I'll take your punishment. I'm gonna cancel the war between you and the king. I, the prince, will take the hit. That is yours. I've come to cancel the fight between you and God because he's a loving father. I'll do that for you. Leaders take hits that were meant for other people. But they see you'll be better off because of what I did. And I will do that. For unto us a child is born. I hope you never read that the same. He's the Prince of Peace who canceled the fight between you and God. If there's a fight between you and God, it's because you're fighting God. God's not fighting you. You're fighting God. But anytime you want to cancel that war, he's ready to take you. And everybody said amen. Amen. Come on, let's everybody stand as I, stand to our feet as I wrap up the service this morning. And I want you to praise him for being a God who sent his son to pay your penalty. Come on, thank him for that this morning, will you? Come on. 20, 30 seconds, you can give him praise for being a God who changed the dynamics of a war and said, let's have peace. Thank you, Jesus. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. With heads bowed and no one looking around here, I'm going to ask our connection groups, leaders, and some of our church leadership to make their way forward at this time. And here's the thing. You have a God who cares about what happens to you. 
And I realize there might be people here who need to accept Jesus. I realize that there might be people here today who say injustice is running rampant in my world. I don't know how to stop. I don't know, I don't know what to do. And some of you may be saying, man, I, I have, I've been warring against God. And some of you may say, man, I need a father. just need a father to put his arms around me. Can I tell you, God wants to be that today. And whether you need to accept Jesus or you have a need in your life or a need for somebody else, as we sing this song, I'm going to ask you to get out of your seat and I'm going to ask you to make your way forward and come to one of these folks and ask them to pray for you today. Why? Because you have a God who says, will you talk to me? Talk to me. I'm interested in what's going on in your life. So come on, let's sing it now as people make their way. Come on. as I say the blessing and we go I bless you in the name of the Lord may he bless you in this city and in this county may the fruit of your womb and the crops of your land and all your livestock be blessed may he bless the work of your hands at home at work at church in this community may he bless your coming and your going may the Lord grant the enemies that rise up against you be defeated when they come at you in one direction let them flee from you and seven directions. May the Lord send a blessing on everything you put your hand to do. May He continue to establish you as His holy people. May all people see you've been called by the name of the Lord. May the Lord grant you prosperity, opening up the heavens, the storehouse of His bounty. May He bless the work of your hands. I bless you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And everybody gave a shout of amen. Amen. The Lord bless you. Have a great day.